Good evening, church. It's good to see each of you. I'm always amazed whenever someone hears me for the first time that they do manage to come back a second time. And so I welcome you back if you were here last night. Uh, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be here. I, I love this entire um, subject because it takes us right to the heart of, I believe, the Father's heart that he wants to be with us. And so we talked about that last night. I'm grateful for the friendships that have been forged here over the last five years um, with the dear ones who lead this campus and with the students that I've had the privilege to meet and some of you that I met at this conference last year. I really am grateful, Colin, for you and for Art, and for Michael and Tim and the others that, that work so hard here and have been gracious to invite me back. I was talking to somebody, I said, I'll, I'll see you in the fall. I said, that is if they ask me back. And um, we, always, we always do not take those things for granted. Last night we talked about the priority of seeking the presence of God when we pray. That when we go to pray, our first assignment, our first priority, the first thing, if we do nothing else when we pray, is to be with Him. And so to that end, I just wanted to mention a couple of books. And one has already been mentioned, the book by Art Nurnberg. This is a, a marvelous, uh, basic, manual, primer, and as such, it's a necessity. Uh, and I'll mention later why, but uh, we need the instruction that you'll find in this book. And so if you're teaching a small group or... Uh, just for yourself, you're wanting to get a well-rounded understanding of prayer, this is what you need to read. It'll help you, and it'll help you look at the scriptures that you need to. And I get no uh, royalties or benefits from mentioning that. And um, and then uh, another book I wanted to mention, because when we meet with, with, with the Lord, we need to know who we're meeting with. And so apart from reading your scripture, uh, there are some books that help us gain a vision of the Lord based on his word. And one of those that has been very helpful for me over the years is a book by A.W. Tozer called The Knowledge of the Holy. The Knowledge of the Holy. Now, he has a lot of books, but The Knowledge of the Holy is one that will take you in a simple and a concise way through something of who God is to help you understand. Uh, what I do with books like that and another one like Abide in Christ by Andrew Murray is I'll, I'll go to a store It'll do this for you and cut the spine off of it and then they'll put spiral in it and then it'll lie flat. And, um, and so I have my copy here with me uh, for that reason. But you'll find it helpful for that reason. The third book I wanted to mention is a book by Jerry White. And uh, it says Gerald R. White Jr. here. Don't know him, but I know Jerry White. And this book is called Fellowship with God. And it's, it's available in the back uh, for purchase. And if you don't have, if you're not familiar with this text, I encourage you, it, it underscores much of what we talked about last night. And I could just read the, 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 the little, they're brief, uh, chapters. They're designed to get you into, uh, your relationship with Him. But some of the headings for the chapters, unhurried and alone in prayer. Variety by the Spirit's leading. Um, communion of Father and Child. Enjoying God's presence all the time. And so I can't, I can't commend to you the value of this because it's such a rare treatment 
uh, of the things that we're talking about even tonight So, and, and yesterday. So I encourage you there. And someone make sure those get back to the table because I don't own those. I took them from those tables without paying for them. So, and I'm not keeping those. All right. Let me encourage you to, if you brought your Bible, to go to Matthew chapter 9. And then, as we did last night, you want to hold your finger in Luke 11. Uh, Those are two primary texts we're going to look at tonight. Matthew 9, very end of the chapter, and Matthew, uh, Luke 11 as well. And we're going to look at a lot of scripture, but um, but it's not, it's, you know, last night when I teach something like that, I feel like I'm causing people to drink from a fire hose, and I don't want to do that. I want to be sensitive to what he's saying to you, and the only way I can do that is to recognize his presence myself while I'm speaking. And so would you help me in that way, and would you join me in praying as we begin? And Father, we do pause everything. We pause our thoughts and our hearts that for the next few moments, we want very much, Lord, to meet with you. We've sung about you. We've sung to you. But now we wish to hear your voice. And so, as Phil prayed, we do ask that you would anoint your word. And because all things are from you and through you and to you, Lord, I pray that you would use me. And that my heart would be tender towards your heart in these moments to share with your people your word according to their need. So we welcome you here. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So, when I come to a meeting like this, I'm thinking, I'm not talking to prayer rookies. I'm talking to people who have given some careful time and attention thought about prayer. If you're a student here, that is part of what's happening in your experience here at EI. Those of you who have been students, you know that that's important. And so, as I've simply sought to to explore what are some of the dimensions of prayer that we do not typically address, that's what we're doing this weekend. And so last night we talked about how His presence is the main thing and the first thing. And our love for Him and our approach to Him when we come in prayer is not to check off a list of requests. It's not to uh, feel that I've done my daily duty and then just move on with my day, it is to initiate a conversation that should continue throughout my day. In the quiet place of my inner self, where I have carved out a space where it's just him and me. And so we focused on that last night. And we also talked about how in his presence, we are not the same. When he exposes himself to us, when we are experiencing not just as an idea, but something of His presence as He truly is, His majesty, His glory. And truly, we can't, we can't handle the full exposure. But to the extent that He intends for us at that moment in our context and according to our need, He makes Himself real to us 
Then there are these times of refreshing, seasons of refreshing. He affects us on every level of who we are, physically, psychologically, spiritually. And it's just part of His grace. And it's your birthright as His child to anticipate that He will come and meet with you if you will draw near to meet with Him. There are generally three New Testament words for prayer that are used most commonly. Uh, We're going to focus on two of those tonight. The third one, which is the word for intercession, we're going to look at in the morning. And by the way, if you can't be here tomorrow, I understand where I think they put this out there on the World Wide Web and you can go and, and hear it. But can I do a commercial for this? Because this is so important. I heard Phil mention in his prayer that it just seems the world is growing darker and darker and darker. And it seems hopeless. But there's an aspect of prayer where you can find hope. It is the Father's desire stated in His Word that He wants to conform you to the image of His Son. And so in terms of my prayer life, He doesn't want me to merely pray. He wants to conform my prayer life to the prayer life of His Son. And I don't want to preach tomorrow's sermon right now in the commercial. But where is Jesus in this moment? We know His Spirit, who abides with us forever. Those of us who know Him, He's come to live in us. He abides with us forever. The Spirit is here, and He is relating to us the heart of God, the presence of God, to whatever extent we comprehend Him. The Holy Spirit, He is the responsible one for that. But where is Jesus right now? He's at the right hand of the Father. And what is He doing there? He's making intercession for us. He's making intercession for us right now, right where you're sitting. He's praying for you. And he's praying for me. And I'm glad because I need someone praying for me. But if he's going to conform you to the image of his son, where do you think he's taking your prayer life? He's taking you to a place of being an intercessor. I want to talk tomorrow morning about that. What does it mean to be an intercessor? Because that's where he's taking you. Now, you may take your whole life. He may, if there's 10 steps to becoming an intercessor, and if you're like me and you're in the slow group, and you're learning at 62 what you wish you'd known at 26, then you may only get three or four steps in. Like Jacob. I don't think Jacob ever went as far as he could have gone. And I had so identify with him. But, you know, I want... All that God has in mind for me on this side of heaven. Don't you? And so we're going to look at that in the morning. What does it mean to be an intercessor? But tonight, he was moved with compassion. And so I want to read this passage of scripture uh, as we begin. And then I'm going to call attention to these three New Testament words. So Matthew 9 right now, and this, this is not on your screen. But Matthew 9, verse, let me, I'm going to start in verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, 
preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved. That's passive. It's a verb. And it refers to his insights. He was moved with compassion when he saw these people. Now, I drive down the road, I see people all the time. And they move me, but not often to compassion. He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so just hold that in your heart. Hold that in your mind for the next few minutes. And we're going to come back to that at a certain point. And, and this will begin to, to make sense. So there are these three New Testament words. One's for intercession. We're going to look at that tomorrow. But tonight, I want to focus on, on these two. And we see them together in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. And so that should be on the screen. I think it's available. Uh, be anxious for nothing. Thank you. For everything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so there are those two words, prayer and supplication. That first word, the, 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 the meaning of it, the original usage of that word, used 37 times in the New Testament. It's a general word for prayer. includes any kind of praying. Communion with God, like we talked about last night. Asking God to act. Corporate praying. And it's uh, the task of all ministers who are going to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word in Acts 6. That's the same word that's used there. Um, That ministry of prayer, intercessory prayer is even included in this. So it's a big word. It's a big word. The second word for supplication is more narrow. And it's only used 19 times in the New Testament. It's a more specific word. And even though it's translated prayer, it carries with it more the idea of petition. A request. It's a word that might be used if you were to take a petition to the White House or to Congress or to the courthouse in your county or parish where I come from. If you were going to take that, that petition to them. And, and, and in taking the petition to someone, you are, you are the one with less authority, less power. You're, you're going to someone with greater authority and greater power. And, and so that's, that's that, that word. Now, the disciples would have understood these two concepts of prayer. The very broad understanding of prayer and then the more narrow definition of petition. And yet, when we come to Luke 11, which is the next text I want to call your attention to, Luke chapter 11, where we were last night, they come to him anyway in verse 1. Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Now, it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, when he stopped, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And so they had been watching Jesus and he, he, he disappeared in the mornings. He, he, he disappeared for sometimes days at a time. And they knew he was praying. They knew he was spending time alone with his father. And they also saw the consequence of whenever he did that. The outcomes. Lives were changed. Teaching was made. People were healed. Demons were expelled. And, and they, they recognize that. Lord, teach us to pray. As, as John taught his guys to pray, teach us to pray. 
And so this is what he does. So he said to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. We, that's where we stopped last night. Our Father who's in the realm that I cannot see. And, and don't rush through that. Right? We need to remember who he is and who we are in relationship to him, who we're talking to. And that the very first thing Jesus said, start here. Start here. Father. There's some days you may never get any further than that. The rest of these are petitions. And, and it's telling us what to pray. He's telling us, pray in these things. I look at these as headings or boxes or categories or things to pray about. All right? And so the first one, uh, hallowed be your name. Literally, your name, let it be made holy. And when you pray that way in that kind of petition, you're, you're asking, Lord, we want your name to be lifted up. We want your name to be exalted. In my life, in my family, in my community, in the world that I live in, Lord, your name, let it be made holy. Literally, that's what it says. And then it says, your kingdom come. Literally, your kingdom, let it come. That's a request. Your rule, the exertion of your authority. Your kingdom, let it come. Your will, let it be done. Same petition, a, a different petition, but same con- concept. Right? You're asking God to do something on earth as it is in heaven. So this is, this is good. I mean, this is worth everything you paid to be here tonight. Because when he says that phrase, when the Lord Jesus adds that phrase, on earth as it is in heaven, he's telling you something very important about the way to think about prayer and what you're asking. He's saying in heaven, my father is the king. There is absolutely no opposition. And there's no way that his will is not completed and not accomplished. His purposes are completely fulfilled. And the way that God rules in heaven, the world that, realm that I cannot see. Remember, reality is both the unseen and the seen. In that place that I cannot see, Father, I'm asking you to come and exert that same kingdom authority in my circumstance on earth. And that just applies to so many things that you encounter and that you're experiencing. You're having difficulty in your home with a mate or with a child or with a friend. Or friends having problem in their house. Oh God, would you come? And would you rule in this circumstance? Meet this need. As you have met it in heaven. And you are ruling in heaven. And there's no sin, no Satanist, uh, no, no sin, no sickness, no Satan, nothing else bad that starts with S. The way you rule in heaven, would you rule on earth? Petitions. Things to pray about. What we pray. Jesus is teaching, give us day by day our daily bread, which tells me that whatever else I say about these petitions, they are intended to be something that I pray about each day. I can't pray about my daily bread every other day. And, and if I'm praying about my, if I'm praying this model prayer each day, then all these other things are intended to be prayed daily. So they, they go together. That, that's a controlling request. Daily bread, yes, what I eat, but, but as I've 
grown into this in my own life, it's whatever I need. He is faithful. He is promised to supply everything we need to do everything he's called us to do. And so my daily bread is, is far broader than just what I eat. And forgive us our sins. As for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so we're keeping integrity. We're examining our heart. And we're saying, oh God, forgive me. Be merciful to me. In the way that I'm being merciful to others. And so it's just a reminder. Powerful reminder. That if we understand how much we've been forgiven and we're continuing to be forgiven and cleansed, that we are equally as gracious to those who offend us. Lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into overwhelming circumstances that blindside us. And and if you're not praying something like that daily, you need to. Oh, Lord, please. Created me a heart that stays so close to you that I'll not be overwhelmed in testing. And deliver me from the evil one. Not just evil as a general idea, but from the evil one. Every day. Oh, Father, deliver me from the evil one. Now, this is particularly significant, dear ones, when you realize this is Jesus teaching this. And he would not tell you to do something he was not doing himself. So if the Lord Jesus believed this was the way to pray, shouldn't I take this pretty seriously? And so there we have the focus on what to pray. The exception being our Father in heaven. That's not a petition. That's worship. That's praise. That's fellowship. But the rest are the petitions. So that's what to pray. When we come on, though, obviously there's more. So we come down to verse 5, and he said to them, he suddenly launches into a story. He's teaching about prayer. Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. He will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. They had to be smiling. I mean, there's, I see humor in this. Anyway, I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. And so he's telling the story there, not about what to pray. He's not saying something about how God answers prayer. He's not telling us what to pray. He's telling us how to pray. He's telling us something about how to pray. And because this is included in his teaching, then I understand this is important. It's not enough to know the words. There's something about how I approach him and what and how I use these words and where these words are coming from that are important to him. And he wants me to, to take care in relationship to that. So the second part of his teaching is what we want to talk about and, and why. Why do we need to talk about how we pray? First thing I would mention, prayer in the church. Prayer in the church is becoming more and more nominal. Now, I haven't been to every church. But I hear a lot of pastors 
who tell me that the moment you announce a prayer meeting, you just cut the crowd to a very small number of people. And which makes this a remarkable moment. And um, and in working with pastors over the years, I would hear different things about the struggle that they had. But we we too easily dismiss those people who don't show up and say they don't believe in prayer. But the truth is, they're scared to death of it. They don't know what's going to happen when they get there. And they haven't read Art's book. Because if they understood what prayer was about, they would feel a little bit more confident about showing up for a prayer meeting. And so they need teaching. They need guidance. They need, they need direction. When uh, I was a new Christian, uh, one of the first churches I attended was in San Antonio, Texas, where I uh, grew up initially. And uh, I, I came to know the Lord, and then I was attending this church during my first years of college. And I didn't know how to pray. But these senior adults in that church... They're probably all with the Lord now. But these senior adults in the church were meeting before anything else happened on campus on Sunday mornings. I think they were meeting at 7 a.m., which for a college student, that seemed really early. And they said, Don, you're invited to come. And so I go, and there was maybe one other college student, and they didn't have any chairs in the room, so we all sat on the carpet. I'm sitting there with these people in their 60s and 70s, a couple in their 80s, and they're praying. And I learned to pray, listening to them pray. I'm still learning to pray. But I learned a lot about how to pray, listening to those dear men and women pray. And so we can't just dismiss people who don't show up for the meetings and say they don't believe in prayer. They... They need someone to encourage them and help them. And I could say a lot more about that, but we need to think about how we pray because prayer in church is struggling. Prayer as a practice in the local church is struggling. It just is. I, I have pastors that will come and tell me, Don, our Wednesday night prayer meeting that, they, that we have in, in the average Baptist church where I tend to do most of my circling, um, that means you pray for five or ten minutes, and then you do a Bible study. You know, prayer is this much, the Bible study is this much. And so they would say, so what I decided to do, Don, is we were going to take Wednesday night and reclaim it as a prayer meeting. No one came. You know, they would get discouraged. Well, I, I told them, I said, well, those people obviously like to study the Bible. And you took that away from them. You know, what are they going to do? Um, it's not because they hate Scripture that they didn't show up. But obviously, they weren't prepared for that to become a prayer meeting. But somewhere in the life of church, there needs to be a place, in my opinion, where the only reason we show up for that, that time is to pray. And, and so I would say to that pastor, the first thing I would say to them is, um, do you have a group that you pray with? And almost to the man, they would say no. In other words, the pastors that struggled to have people in their prayer meeting often did not have their own prayer meeting. And, and, um, and so I would commend to them the value of them having their own group that they pray with. 
because it just adds credibility and it adds, it says what I believe about prayer if I have someone I'm praying with. And so it was just really important. Another issue is uh, some of the things we talked about already in, in Luke 11. We just don't think prayer makes a difference. We don't think it matters whether I pray or not. God is sovereign. He's already determined everything, we, some of us would say. And, and so because he's already got the plan and it's already worked out, what difference does it make whether I pray? It doesn't matter. And yet the entire testimony of Scripture is, it makes a huge difference. In fact, if we look again at the Lord's Prayer that we just read, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If that's a petition that we're asking God, and he's saying, talk to God about this, ask this. Can I presume that he's going to do that if I don't ask? He said, ask me to do these things. But is he going to do them if I don't ask him to do them? Is he going to deliver me from the evil one if I don't ask him to deliver me from the evil one? And so, as church leaders and pastors, it's so important that we help people understand that there are things that God wants to do that He is not going to do if we don't ask. We're going to underscore that uh, tomorrow. So prayer in the church becoming more and more nominal. second reason we need to focus on how we pray is that it's not enough to know that you ought to pray. We've been told that, haven't we? You ought to pray. It's guilt-producing, and guilt is a poor motivator. If you can get guilt people successfully, to do something, they'll do it for a little while, but then they'll disappear. Okay? So, we know we ought to pray, but that's not sufficient. We need to know more than we ought to pray. Uh, a third reason, it is not enough to know what to pray. Well, we just covered. It's not enough to know that these are the things we should pray about. Why do I know that that's a fact? That knowing what to pray is insufficient, because Jesus didn't stop there. He went on and told this story. He's saying there's more to prayer than just saying the right words. There's something more here. And that's what I want you to see. So let's work our way. We need to know how to pray. Let's work our way through this issue uh, for a few moments. I just want to say three things about this tonight. Number one, my praying, my praying, the will of the Father is a prerequisite to answered prayer. My praying, the will of the Father is a prerequisite to answered prayer. The great text on this issue is 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I think Art, somebody brought it out this morning, that that word here is very significant. Because in the sense that God is conscious of everyone who's speaking in prayer, well, of course he is. He doesn't miss a thing. But here in this context means he's going, when he hears you, he's going to do it. You with me? If, if, he, if he hears you in this sense, because you're asking something according to his will, he's going to do it. And in fact, that's what the, that John goes on to say. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. What does that mean? Well, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So that's why we encourage people to discover the promises of God in His Word, and to pray the promises of God. We're going to talk again about some of that tomorrow. Wielding the Word of God in prayer. And so this is important. 
And if I want my prayer to be answered, I can't be asking just for my own carnal motivations, just to do what I want to do, like James 4. He says, you ask and you don't receive because you ask just so you can spend it on your own motives for selfish reasons. No, it has to be about what God wants to do, what he intends to do. And I'm, I'm being encouraged to tap into what the will of God is about a certain situation. So that's the thing I need to find out when I encounter a problem or need or circumstance. Lord, how do you want me to pray about this? Not, not how in the sense of what we're talking about, but in what way? What is your will for this? So when I first began to really wrestle with this in my own experience, that meant sometimes I would sit before the Lord and, and I would have my prayer list because you're have, supposed to have a prayer list if you're serious. And so the first name on my prayer list would be Gail, my wife, who's here. I'm so glad she's here. Lord, how do you want me to pray for Gail today? And I would do exactly what you're doing. I'll be waiting. And not always. Sometimes he'd bring something very specific to mind in his word. Sometimes anticipating something that's happening in her day, his spirit would prompt me to pray in a particular issue or a particular need. More times than I can tell you, and I don't have time to do this tonight, but I could tell you things that he's brought to my mind to pray for her or pray for my kids. And I would go to them and I would act on what he told me to do or what he told me to say to them. And it was like an explosion of grace in the life of that dear one. It was timely. It was perfect. It was exactly what they needed. And, and I was a vehicle for that because I am not smart enough to come up with the right thing. I'm not. I was raised with some difficulty in my life. and so I, It's not natural. It's supernatural get it right and so we pray according to his will so we talk about praying the promises of good god because they're clear expressions of what god has said he wants to do and so we do pray the promises of god so here's my conclusion about what we pray if i want my prayers to be answered alignment with the will of god is absolutely vital there has to be an alignment between what i'm asking and what he wants to do and we see that from this text. Here's a problem. We don't always know what he wants to do. So much of the time, I have not a clue what he wants to do. Does that mean we're stuck? Don't be shocked by me admitting that. You say, well, don't you know your Bible, Don? Surely there's a promise you can grab hold of. Oh, no. doesn't work like that. Job A or job B? Should I go here or go there? Should I do this with my time today or should I do that with my time today? If you can find chapter and verse that answers all of those questions, thank you very much. Please come up here and take my place tonight. I don't always know what he wants to do. In Romans 8 verse 26, the Apostle Paul admitted the same problem. The Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. Very pivotal verse. But in principle, my heart should be so set that what I want to do is ask the Lord to do 
what he intends to do. What's on his mind, his will, and not my own. So that's the first thing I want to say about this. Second thing, my praying involves more than saying the right words. Jesus has already made that clear. And in the story of this man petitioning his friend at midnight to give him some bread, when the door is locked and the children are down asleep and he's pounding on the door and waking the baby, when he's being persistent, he's being just shamelessly pressing his friend to give him what he needs, Jesus is telling us something about how we pray. And so, not just the what, the how and not just the what. So the man must have what he's asking for. He must have it. Jerry and I were talking about this last week, Jerry White. And Jerry has been a father in the Lord for me for years and years, and I know he has for many of you. But the word he used was desperate. It's not just persistent. It's desperate. Nothing else will do. There's no way out of this. I must have an answer. I must have you, Lord, to come into my circumstances. Lord, I'm giving this to you. I have no power of this. I'm casting my cares on you. I'm releasing the ownership of my problem. I'm giving it to you. He's desperate. Let me give you some examples in Scripture. Just a few. But I love these examples. Hannah in 1 Samuel 1. Couldn't have a child. Kept going year after year. The other wife was having babies like fertile myrtle. I mean, she was just no problem. And, and she wasn't satisfied to just be having babies. She was giving Hannah all kinds of grief, driving her to tears and deep pain and, and hurt because of the stigma associated with not being able to have a child. And so she goes, and I wish we had time to go into this story, but she does go to the Lord again and again. She is persistent. She does ask and keep asking. She does seek and keep seeking. She does knock and keep knocking. And just like a drill going around and around and around on the same point, that's what she was doing. And she was desperate. I call it the prayer life of a desperate housewife. She was desperate. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 10, it says, She was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. That's different than praying casually. Oh Lord, hear our prayers and bless us. Good night. Must have an answer. Jairus, synagogue leader, his child was dying, his daughter was dying. The Bible says in Mark 5, And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, he came, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly. And the word there for beg means he kept doing it. He was begging and begging and begging him earnestly. That's not very casual or quiet. The Syrophoenician woman, she wasn't even Jewish. She came with a prayer need, a prayer request. She had a demonized daughter. 
And it says in Mark 7, verse 26, the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of the daughter. She kept asking him. She needed relief. She needed God, the way he rules in heaven, to come to the earth and rule in her circumstances and deliver her daughter. It's not just what we pray. Paul, Galatians 4.19, my little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. In Galatians 2.20, he says, Christ is in me. Christ lives in me. I want him to live in you. And I'm laboring until I see the markers of Christ's life being formed in you. I've watched my wife have six children. There's nothing casual about that. It's got to come out. And it's all consuming. There's this moment in childbirth with this woman. I don't even know her anymore. She sits up in bed. Her head spins around. She's looking at me and says, stop frowning. I wasn't frowning. Why? Because she's consumed. Labor. Travail. Do we know how to pray? Epaphras. Colossians chapter 4 verse 12. Paul is telling the Colossians about Epaphras. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always laboring fervently for you in prayers. It's that word, same word Paul used in Galatians 4. Laboring fervently in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. You know, we talk about spiritual formation and and Christian studies and how we can help people grow spiritually. But what if a very significant part of the growth of a believer was dependent on the prayer life of someone interceding for them? I am in labor until Christ is formed in you. Everybody needs somebody praying for them. Ephesians 6, I think Paul said that. Sowing tears. I'll end with this one. Psalm 126, verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. I didn't say these things. This is merely the record of the Word of God. So Jesus did not teach us just what to pray. He's saying something to us about how to pray. And I'm telling you, we're just doing a 40,000 foot flyover. We're just touching the surface of this topic in the text. So the third thing I want to say is this. This is the final thing, but it's a bigger part of the house. My praying needs to align with my Father's will and His heart. My praying needs to align with the Father's will, my Father's will, And his heart. This ties into last night. So here's some of the questions. You hear a preacher stand up. 
and he's getting emotional and loud. Here's some of the questions that I would have about what this guy up there is saying. Is the heart of God somehow moved to a new place because of our cries? Is his heart moved to a new place because I'm crying out? Another question. It seems fake to try and create feeling when I don't have those feelings. I mean, if those feelings aren't there, does he still want me to pray with some kind of intensity that I don't possess? A third question. Well, third statement. But yet clearly this desperation and persistence is something that we see modeled and admonished in Scripture. Now, you know admonishment means to put something in the mind. So we see this in Scripture. It's modeled for us. And it's there for us to pay attention to. So reconciling these two issues is how I want to bring this to a landing. Reconciling these two is a matter of answering the question, in my opinion, and I think it's valid. Why, how can I be concerned with what to pray, the will of God, and how to pray the heart of God? I think the question you have to answer is this. Where does prayer truly begin? Where does tr- prayer truly begin? And I would simply say this. It starts with God and ends with God. It starts with Him and ends with Him. From the beginning all the way through. Romans 11 verse 36. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory. To Him be glory. One preacher once said, the prayer that gets to heaven starts in heaven. The prayer that gets to heaven starts in heaven. And we're not always conscious that that's where it came from. That passion, that burden, that intensity. But I'll tell you where it came from. Somebody got close to the heart of God. It was already there. It was already there. You see, the will of God is not something sterile, just words on a page. The will of God and the heart of God are inseparable. He is unitary in his being. They're not little pieces of God over here and pieces of God over here. He is one. And... Um, and so there are two passages that I want to share with you that I think help you see this. They help me see this. That put these, these two concepts of how we pray, what we pray and how we pray, and pull them together. Here's the first one I want to share. John 15, verses 7 and 8. John 15, verses 7 and 8. And this is in this marvelous teaching in John 15 about abiding in Him. And John 15 is really just the illustration of John 14. So if you've studied John 14... John 15 is just illustrating what he's already taught. John 14 is saying these guys are worried, they're afraid, you let not your hearts be troubled because their hearts were troubled. And he explains to them, look, I am leaving, and they're getting it, and they're understanding it, but I'm going to send another helper. He's going to abide with you forever. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That's what he says. And so I think they must have had these puzzled looks on their faces. I don't think they fully understood. That's just my imagination. Because in John 15, he says, look, let me just draw you a picture. (laughs) Now he's bringing it to my level. Let me draw a picture. You know, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Okay? And the way this works is that I want you to stay vitally connected to me, to abide in me, to have fellowship with me and communion with me. And if you'll do that, you're going to produce a lot of fruit. Because I am the vine, and I supply everything you need to bear fruit. 
you know. So much of the time we spend our focus on the end of the branch as individuals or as churches trying to produce fruit. Jesus never told you to produce fruit. He did tell you to abide in me. And so this, this verse that I'm reading about prayer is in the context of this teaching. And so he says this, if you abide in me, okay, vital relationship, communion with him, fellowship with him. If you stay with me and my words abide in you, the things that I've taught, the things I've expressed to you are on my heart. This is what I want. This is what I, I want you to know. This is the what of the prayer. If, if my words abide in you and you're abiding in me, look at what he says. You will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. And by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you'll be my disciples. This is really going to have import tomorrow when we realize that prayer is one of the primary ways that he wants to get things done in the world. That one of the the things that we call fruit in John 15 is the consequence of your praying like this. So, So it's not name it and claim it. Is it? It's a relationship and it's some effort to understand what Jesus said. And by immersing myself in this relationship and his word, I'm going to come to a place where my desires are going to reflect something of his heart. And if it's on the heart of God and he has formed my desires, conform my desires to his heart. I can ask what I, whatever I want. Because he is, he is for my heart. You ever read that Psalm 37 verse 4? Delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. That's what, this is just a restatement of that. Just a restatement of that. Someone who just loves the Father, enjoys being with him, loves his word, is attentive to his will, and I want to know what, what his heart is. That person who's just sort of living in that environment, their desires are not going to be the same. They're going to change. It changes what you ask for, and it changes how you pray. And it changes what's important. So, I want you to see the alignment there between the will and the heart. Okay, there's, there's, there's your heart. Obviously, there's desires of your heart. Whatever you wish, you want, that's your heart. But abiding in him, that's got to do with his heart. And so if you're in a relationship with him and you're having fellowship with him, communion with him, your heart is exposed to his heart. And in that exposure, over time, there's an alignment between your heart and his heart. What he is compassionate about, you begin to become compassionate about. What he loves, you begin to love. What he hates, you begin to hate. And it's exposure to the presence of God, in this sense, the heart of God, when you're in his presence. We see, you know, on a different way, and I was going to use this text tonight, but it it wasn't really exactly where I wanted to be. But Isaiah 6, you're familiar with that. King Uzziah dies, and... This man that has led the nation 52 years is gone. Isaiah goes to seek God, has his vision of the Lord. John 12 tells us it's the Lord Jesus. And, and he's high and he's holy and there are these seraphim and angels flying around. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the presence of his holiness 
God lights up his sinfulness, it's just going to happen in the presence of God. It's not God being unkind to you. It's just going to happen. And, and it just lights up, and he says, woe is me. I am undone. And, and so the angel comes and takes a coal from the altar where things die, and he touches his lips, and he's cleansed. And then he says this, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying. Now, the, the special thing about that is that the Lord had been saying it. He just hadn't been hearing it. And so when I talk about being exposed to the heart of God, being in his presence, being exposed to his heart, there are these moments where his heart, his passion, his desire, not only his will, is apparent to you. He opens your awareness, just like he did with Isaiah, to what he's about, what he's saying, what he wants, and what he desires. Reese Howells, John Hyde, these great prayer warriors, intercessors, another you read their lives, you're reading about this. So that's one passage. Second passage. Second passage I want you to hear. It's found in Matthew 9, verse 36. If that sounds familiar, it's because that's how we started the night. Okay? Matthew 9, verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. So now we have insight into the heart of Jesus at this moment. Okay? What's his heart? He's moved with compassion. His disciples are there. They know about this because someone wrote it down. Someone noticed. And so he's moved with compassion. That's his heart. He sees the masses. He sees individuals in the masses. And so there is compassion. Because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, okay, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the labors are few. That's the truth about the circumstances. They needed to know this. The Lord is the only one who can tell you the truth about you. He's the only one that can tell you the truth about your circumstances and what you're dealing with. So Jesus tells them the truth. The harvest truly is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, it's no accident that the inspired word of God says his harvest and calls him Lord of the harvest. Where does prayer start? With God. And so we have here at this moment, we see the will of God that laborers be sent out into the harvest, right? We see the will of God. We also see the heart of God, the compassion that's involved. The disciples were exposed to this. If you keep reading into the next chapter, they're about to get sent out. But in this moment, it's about prayer. It begins in prayer. This whole mission, this whole sending out and the giving them authority and all this kind of stuff. Followed this moment of, of prayer. And I love this word for send out laborers into his harvest. That word send out is used elsewhere to describe what Jesus was doing to demons. Expelling them. Exercising them. There's some Christians in church that need to be exercised from the church. Expelled from the church. Expelled from our comfort zones. And, you know, you hear a sermon about evangelism, how you ought to be a witness, and we say, yes, I ought to be a witness, amen. But, but, and so there you know what to do, but do you know how to do it? Jesus, the heart of Jesus, is what you need. Exposure to his heart. Seeking his face. 
exposes us to that. So, the petition's given. It's the will of God. It's what he wants to do. But the how is also given. Jesus is moved with compassion. So, burdens are formed in us as we are exposed to his presence. The nature of a biblical burden is not something that begins with me. It begins with him. Now, sometimes I'm not always conscious that it started with him. But it does begin with him. He wants to conform our heart to his heart and not just pray the right words. I know this because in places like Mark 7, verse 6, he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's not enough to have the right words. It's not enough to have the right what. The how, the heart level, engagement. The Father wants you engaged at that, in that way. So he intends that we learn to pray his word and to be influenced by his heart as we do it. There's a wonderful verse uh, in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3. It says, For I will pour out water on him who is thirsty. It's a promise. Are you thirsty? And floods on the dry ground. Are you a dry ground? I will pour up my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Do you have children and dear ones that need to know God? What a precious promise. In 1949, there was a revival in the way up north islands of Scotland, the Hebrides Islands. I would not want to live there. There are people that actually live there. And there were a couple of sisters. Last name was Smith. And um, they were old. They were blind. But God put it on their heart to pray for their island, the Isle of Lewis. They told their preachers they needed to pray. Preachers were so convicted by these ladies that they started praying. They prayed in a in a barn, they prayed for weeks and weeks and weeks. They kept praying. And while they were praying, God was doing a work in their group, for sure. And that wasn't enough. They called a missionary worker, evangelist, revivalist guy named Duncan Campbell, the UK. And they, they told him he needed to come. At first he turned them down. They said, well, you can be out of the will of God if you want. But he came. And these ladies were claiming this verse for their towns of their island. And Duncan was infected by their heart. He began to pray that prayer. And revival broke out in community after community after community on the island as he would go and preach. Marvelous, remarkable stories, just amazing stories of what God did. But there was one community that wasn't responding. They weren't engaged. People were coming from all over the island to these various churches. No one from this community was coming. The young people were coming, and this was primarily a young adult movement, but the young people weren't coming, the older adults weren't coming, and it was a, it was a village. I think it was called Arnon. So the ladies told Duncan, you need to come to our house and pray. 
And so he gathered up some others, some locals, other believers to pray. One was a blacksmith. His name was Smith, too. I'm not sure if he was related to the sisters. I saw a picture of him, and I've seen a picture of them. They might be related. They were meeting in the kitchen. And they were praying this verse for this community that had not responded when all the others had responded. And now I'm just reading what happened. Around midnight, this wasn't casual praying either, was it? Around midnight, Duncan turned to the local blacksmith. His name was John. I feel the time has come for you to pray. Apparently, John was a quiet guy. John rose to pray. And in the middle of his prayer, he paused. He raised his right hand to heaven. And he said, oh God, you made a promise to pour water upon him that is thirsty. And floods upon the dry ground. And Lord, it's not happening. Lord, I don't know how the others here stand in your presence. I don't know how the ministers stand. But Lord, if I know anything about my own heart, I stand before thee as an empty vessel. Thirsting for thee and for a manifestation of thy power. He halted again and after a moment, it's a tense silence. He cried, Oh God, your honor is at stake. And I now challenge you to fulfill your covenant engagement and do what you have promised to do. And the house shook. The plates on the shelf rattled. Witnesses talked about it for years. There literally was an earthquake. As the Lord manifested his presence to a group of guys in the kitchen of some old sisters. They had touched something of the heart of God. And lives were changed. That village came along like the rest of them. And lives were changed for all eternity. So, in summary, as I close, we need to know what to pray. His promises and His Word. Right? But the first priority of prayer is that we have communion and fellowship with Him. He wants to conform your heart, my heart, to His heart. It doesn't matter. Listen to me. It doesn't matter whether you already have a desperate cry or whether your heart is bone dry. You hear me? doesn't matter whether you already have some desperation or whether you're just completely bone dry. doesn't matter. He is going to align your heart to His if you will seek Him. And there are times where Two things I need to add before I close. As I mentioned last night, this is a journey. We're drawing near to Him. He draws near to us. If your heart is not where it needs to be, you can trust Him to remove whatever needs to be removed. To do the work in you that needs to be done. It's not all on you. 
And so if your need is some confession of some sin, he will put the finger of his spirit right on that. You'll know what you need to do. You don't have to make stuff up. He'll surface this. But the other thing I would point out is this. There's times when you're praying, they seem like nothing's happening. I don't have any sense of what God wants to do, and I don't have a sense of the heart of God, and I don't have a sense for the presence of God. And what I want to say to you is, keep praying. Don't stop. I visited Asbury six weeks ago. I mentioned that to you and and sensed what God was doing. And uh, in the hearts of a generation that scholars had said was being lost to the church, I saw them leading the way. And the Lord dealt with me. And in a tender and beautiful way, he spoke to my heart on a number of things. In my life, and direction, and then there are things that just defy the ability to describe. I was on the way home. Jerry White called me. He called me every day. He calls me a lot. He texts, especially during LSU games. I was driving out early when I was leaving, and I, I was going home. And we were talking, and we were talking about some things, and I just I was just weeping. He said, Don, let me tell you something. When I was a retreat director at Titusville Church in Titusville, Park Avenue Baptist Church, Titusville, Florida, retreat ministry there, lives were changed all over the country. People would go there. And Jerry orchestrated these retreats and spoke and led these retreats. He said sometimes people would, during the breaks would go out to the beach. People from New England, people from other parts of the country where they don't get as much sun. They wouldn't think anything about it. They'd go to the beach and they'd invariably stay out there too long and get terribly sunburned. The thing is, they didn't know they were being sunburned until after they were sunburned. Being exposed to the light... They were unconscious of the full effect and impact of the sun on their skin. He said, being in the Lord's presence is like that. There are dimensions to what the Lord is doing, dear one, that you may not fully understand in the moment, nor fully understand for days and weeks and months and even years to come. And that's okay. But I offer that as a word of encouragement to you, especially in those moments, especially in those moments where you think you're wasting your time, nothing's happening. I don't have any sense of the presence of God. It's okay. As we said in Psalm 16, just like David, I'm going to set the Lord before me. And he is my father and I'm his child and I'm going to trust him no matter what. Would you take just a moment, please, to bow your heads and to close your eyes? I'm going to lead us in prayer in just a moment. This will be a closing prayer. And when I close, uh, we're going to have a song. We're going to sing. When the song's over, Penis is going to continue to play quietly when that song is over that we sing. And... We just want to give you some time to exit the building like we did last night. Uh, but she's going to keep playing and you're going to be able to visit a bit. But we do ask you to um, 
go ahead and visit, but, but move that outside. Those who would wish to stay behind and pray, for you just need some time. It's okay. And the school is graciously making the space available to you for as long as you need. And if you do need to speak to someone, I'll be here, Colin will be here, others will be here. We'll be glad to talk with you. So he is here. And as we bow our heads and as we close our eyes, what has he said to your heart? What is he doing to your heart? Are you thirsty? He's promised to quench your thirst. Are you frightened and afraid? He said, bring those needs to me. Cast your care on me. Give those prayers, those supplications to me. My peace will rule in your heart. He loves you. He loves you. He does love you. He sees you. He knows. Father, we rejoice tonight in who you are. We're thankful tonight that you are king. That you rule over everything that would rule over us. That you're our rock and our refuge and our hiding place. When we need safety. Peace. You're our peace. For that dear one who's in the pit and knows nowhere else to turn and doesn't know how this is going to work out, and they're crying out to you, we pray tonight, Lord, you would assure them that you have a way for them through this, that they have never been abandoned. That they are not alone. Some of us have carried burdens for dear ones for years and years. But our hope is not in 
their sensitivity to you or their alertness to you or whether or not they're ever going to trust you. Our hope is in you. And your power to change a human heart. Forgive us, Lord, for the many times you have waited for us to come and we have, we have not come. You have invited us to draw near. We haven't. I pray you would inject hope into that heart tonight that needs to know that there is a way ahead that is better than where they are now. And that you are the one in whom they can hope. We thank you, Lord, for your beauty, your tender love, your tender heart towards us, your children. We thank you, Lord, that you have clearly demonstrated you are prepared to do whatever it takes to rescue us. As we choose to have fellowship with you, may our hearts increasingly, increasingly beat with your heart. That not only we might be joyful, but that we also might see fruit and you might be glorified. For we ask it, Father, in the strong name of Jesus, amen.